upholding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific technological elite. Signed a climate convention on the importance of economic instruments and free markets were included in this mammoth uh, Agenda 21 document and the Rio Declaration. Uh, let me be clear on one fundamental point. Uh, the United States fully intends to be the world's preeminent leader in protecting the global environment. Coming up, Technocracy News. And greetings from Technocracy News and Trends. Patrick Wood here, Editor-in-Chief. And today we're going to bring up the topic again of Arizona State University, what's going on in Phoenix, Arizona, and surrounding environs. The title of this article today is Smart Region, The Rise of the Activist University. That might be a little bit misleading because universities are run by people. It's not universities that become activists, but rather the people in them. I wrote at the top of this article, however, Arizona State University is not a state agency nor a representative of surrounding cities, but it is instrumental in creating a regional scheme to force smart city technology on 4.2 million people in 22 cities in Arizona. The problem facing the global elite today with the implementation of smart city technology across America is that cities all have unique and individual city councils. It could be anywhere from six to eight to 10 people who are duly elected by the people of that city to sit in an office that administrates all of the activities of the city. And I haven't seen a city charter yet where one of the main tenets is to protect the people in the city from harm. Now, harm can come in all kinds of Packages, of course, but the city council in general is charged with that task to be the shepherds of the community to make sure that nothing happens that would be damaging to the economy, to the people, to the institutions within that city. This is a perfectly reasonable thing. And of course, since it's local, all of the people that get elected to a city council are those who live there. The global elite view of the structure of the city as being very problematic because number one, they're all individual people, and they all have their individual flavors and personalities. Cities are quite different from region to region. You have cultural issues that come into play. You have political issues that come into play. And by and large, if one was to try to get five cities anywhere to do the same thing at the same time, one would find it's much like herding cats. They simply don't want to go in the same direction at the same time. Well, the answer to that, to the global elite, is to create a system of regionalization that will take a regional approach on rubber stamping smart city technology in every city within that region. This would be a way to circumvent the city councils individually and simply tell them what to do. In almost every case, there's absolutely no authority to do so, but if each city can be persuaded into doing the things that the regional entity decides is right for them, well, of course, they can do that. This is exactly what's happening in Arizona right now with Arizona State University having created something new called the Smart Region Initiative. They're creating a master plan 
for implementation of smart city technology across 4.2 million people and 22 cities. Now, there's not a lot of cities in America. In fact, there's just under 20,000 cities that are actually incorporated, and only about 5,000 of those are over 5,000 people in population. Nevertheless, the problem of getting those 5,000 cities to do something is again like herding cats. Let me read you part of this article that was recently published in Arizona. It says, ASU is a founding member of a new, quote, smart region initiative, close quote, to bring cities and towns together in the Phoenix area to collaboratively solve challenges and problems using technology. As part of this initiative, ASU partnered with the Maricopa Association of Governments, the Greater Phoenix Economic Council, and the Institute for Digital Progress to form The Connective, a consortium to help provide the Greater Phoenix area with the tools necessary to create a smart city. The city of Phoenix is one of the fastest growing cities in the country. But according to Diana Bowman, the Associate Dean for International Engagement in the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, the metropolitan region is not up to date in terms of becoming a smart city. The greater Phoenix area is well behind the ball, Bowman said. But the goal of creating the connective was to solve that issue by bringing the cities together. The partnership is meant to advance the technologies necessary to create a smart region by involving community and industry leaders. According to Forbes, smart cities, quote, bring together infrastructure and technology to improve the quality of citizens and enhance their interactions with the urban environment, close quote. Bowman said that the goal of the connective is to provide quality of life in the greater Phoenix area. It's not about the technology. It's about the individual, Bowman said. Well, we'll stop here just to make a couple of comments. If the greater Phoenix area is behind the ball on smart city technology, it's because they choose to be behind the ball. ASU thinks that they can speed that process up, partly by simply shaming them into acceptance of this new technology. But Bowman's protest that it's not about the technology, it's about the individual, is absolutely a straw man. It is about the technology, and it is about implementing the technology across an entire region so that the corporate entities involved can make huge profits in the process. The 22 partners that actually make up the connective include companies like Dell, Cox, Sprint, T-Mobile, and the Salt River Project. That's the local utility in this area. And these companies stand to profit by implementing the technology in the individual cities. What's interesting about ASU and about this smart region project is, is patently unconstitutional. Regionalism and regionalization is antithetic to a Republican form of government. The federal government, in fact, is required to provide to the states, according to the Constitution, a Republican form of government. Well, regionalization is not a Republican form of government. Regionalization is regionalization. It strips sovereignty from individual cities, sets up little regional mini-dictators, if you will, to decide what will and will not be done in a certain region. The cities have to bow to that. They have no choice. 
This is the way it's been set up across the country on these so-called councils of governments organizations, like the Maricopa Association of Governments. They had no people-mandated charter in the first place to set up anything of a regional nature, and yet they have, and now they're able to enforce their policies by dangling federal money that they receive to demand that the cities do certain things in order to get the money. All of that money used to flow directly to the cities, by the way, as it should. But the councils of governments have set themselves up between the federal government distribution of money back to cities and the cities themselves. The article continues, in 2020, members of the Connective have started working with different towns and cities in the greater Phoenix region to get an understanding of what issues they are facing. The Connective will be working with partners in both the public and private sectors to combat these challenges, whether it be parking, water, transportation, or other issues. The 22 partners that make up the Connective include Dell, Cox, Sprint, Salt River Project, Bowman said ASU's role in the partnership will be accelerating the development of necessary technology by using its campuses to test and research in a sort of sandbox environment. Quote, ASU is really critical in terms of the idea of co-creating and testing technology. And the technology partners are already on board to help refine and drive it into the market, Bowman said. Now understand the language here, please to refine and drive it into the market. Now that sounds like a democratic process, doesn't it? Let's just decide what to do and then drive it home, like pounding a nail into a board. The other aspect of what ASU is doing here to create this so-called sandbox environment is designating areas within the region to be blanketed with 5G technology and to be open to entrepreneur-type companies to come in and set up operations in Arizona in these sandbox areas. They're allowed to test and research and try things out on the local community to see what works. And the promise is, if they develop something that's new, that can better implement smart city technology, that the connective will take that and roll it out to the entire region. In the meantime, the local areas, the local sandbox areas, the people that live there have become guinea pigs. Will they know that they're guinea pigs? Not likely. Will everything that these companies do be safe for those local citizens? Not likely either. There's nobody to test it to find out. Will everything that these sandbox companies do to those local areas and those local citizens be legal and constitutional? Again, there's absolutely no accountability and nobody's watching. There's no watchdog over this. Basically, it's just a free-for-all for tech startups to come in invent new things, go crazy with whatever their minds can decide to do, do all their testing on local citizens, and then take the results of their successful projects back to the connective and say, look what we did. We can roll this out to the whole region now. The article continues, ASU is really critical in terms of the idea of co-creating and testing technology. And the technology partners are already on board to help refine and drive it into the market. Drive it to the market. Dominique Papa Vice President for Smart State Initiatives at the Arizona Commerce Authority says that the problem prior to the connective was that cities were never really great at working together. And there you have the crux of the matter. Cities don't work together because they don't want to work together. They're individual entities, each with its own value of self-determination. And the extent that they want to work together, they do. 
This has worked for hundreds of years. Mutual cooperation. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, by the way. But it's up to the people in each individual city to decide how it wants to cooperate, if at all, with a neighboring city on any given project. The article continues, Papa said cities tend to focus on helping themselves and ultimately don't have the time or resources to do more, causing various urban problems like pedestrian fatalities and a lack of mobility. Well, I don't know who's too concerned about pedestrian fatalities across cities. That's the problem in each city. Pedestrians die in an individual city. That's their problem to solve, not the city next door. You don't blame them for somebody who gets hit in a crosswalk. And lack of mobility? Well, there is mobility across the Phoenix region. I happen to live here, and I know that. Now, if you ask me, do I care if I can get from one city to the next on an e-scooter or a shareable e-bike or on light rail? Honestly, again, that's the city's problem. If a city wants neighbors to come and visit and visit their restaurants and visit their businesses, well, there's plenty of ways they can do to encourage that kind of activity or discourage it if they want to. So ASU has embarked on a new venture that really hasn't been felt in America yet, but it has turned into an activist university. And it's not by accident, I don't believe, that the university bills itself as the most sustainable university in America. They were the first to offer a PhD degree in sustainable development or sustainability, and they have numerous other degree programs as well that relate to sustainable development. And of course, sustainable development comes directly from the United Nations, which came directly from the bowels of the Trilateral Commission, founded in 1973 by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski, to create their new international economic order. That's the history of sustainable development. ASU has picked up that challenge. Every department at the university has been infiltrated and infected with sustainable development doctrine. And they made it their mission to produce people who will go out and support sustainable development all through the world as they enter their professional careers. What's most interesting about Arizona State University is its president. The president of ASU is Dr. Michael Crow, who came to ASU in 2002, directly from Columbia University, I might add. Columbia is where technocracy originally was created in 1932. And he came to ASU to start basically a new career to transform the university platform into a community activism platform. And this he has done in the years since. In 18 years, ASU literally has been completely transformed from a normal university into a very activist university that's taking a role in local communities now. Dr. Michael Crow himself has an interesting study, and this was his idea, by the way, self-admitted, that is to create this smart region initiative in Arizona. Dr. Michael Crow also has another position in his career that he's quite proud of, and it's very well documented. And that is, in addition to being president of the university, he also is chairman of the board of a venture capital company called NQTEL. Those of you who have ever heard of NQTEL know that it is the venture capital arm of the Central Intelligence Agency the CIA. It has been a venture capital company that has invested in many startups in the technology world that have produced incredible technology that the CIA then is able to pull back and use for its own internal purposes, for the most part, to spy on civilians. So it wouldn't be exactly correct to say that Dr. Michael Crow 
is a direct employee of the CIA because he is not. But the fact that he's chairman of the board of the CIA's one and only venture capital firm makes a big statement on who Dr. Michael Crow is. Is he representing the global elite or is he representing the students and potential students in America at ASU? Well, in the meantime, Americans are basically asleep over this regionalization issue. It's huge across America. Every local community has its own councils of government. In the Phoenix area, is called the Maricopa Association of Governments. It covers basically the same footprint that the Connective is going to cover. That is 4.2 million people in 22 cities. But every other state has their own iteration of this. You can find out what councils of government your area belongs to by going to narc.org. That's the national association that shepherds all of these regional organizations, narc.org. And there you can find the name of your local councils of government's operation that is imposing regionalization on your community. And now if they are successful here in the Phoenix region, this will be the cookie cutter template for the rest of our nation. Smart city developers are watching like hawks from all around America to see what happens in Phoenix. If they make it happen here, you can expect the same thing is going to happen in your area as well. Well, I want to say it's always rather humorous to see little spats between global elite. And this next story is exactly that. One of the early Trilateral Commission members, Joseph Nye, who rose to a position of being the North American chairman of the Trilateral Commission, he's quoted as saying, the future is not aging. I wrote at the top of this one, Trilateral Commission member Joseph Nye disputes Parag Khanna's latest book, The Future is Asian. That may be easier to say after the coronavirus outbreak that is crippling China and breaking the global supply chain. And Nye was indeed formerly chairman of the North American Committee of the Trilateral Commission. He's still an active member on the membership list in 2020. So a little background on Dr. Prague Khanna. He is a scholar based in Singapore, a favorite of the global elite, I might add. He's young, articulate, very intelligent, prolific writer, and a self-proclaimed technocrat. Well, the Trilateral Commission are self-proclaimed technocrats as well. So here you have two technocrats taking a swat at each other. It's humorous to watch it. It's not serious at all. But Connor wrote a book recently called The Future is Asian. And he makes the case that the course of world affairs now is going to be centered around Asia, not around the West. And that would include all the countries in Asia, including India and Thailand and South Korea and Japan, Malaysia. Khanna's idea is that the so-called Belt and Road Project of China is going to transform the entire region, make it a new center of commerce in the world. This article states, Asia's rapid economic growth and deepening interconnections have given rise to the theory that the region will supplant the U.S. as the world's dominant force in the 21st century. But America's leading position remains secure Joseph Nye, a leading American expert on international relations and national security, told Nikai, this comes despite the fading of its soft power, the attractiveness of its culture, values, and policies under President Donald Trump, Nye said. You can tell that Nye doesn't have any regard for President Trump. 
a Harvard professor emeritus and former dean of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, Nye, 83, served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security under President Bill Clinton. The U.S. remains the strongest country in hard power, Nye said. For all that China has grown economically is basically two-thirds of the U.S. economy at current exchange rates, and in military power, it doesn't equal the U.S. in any way. The U.S. remains the only country with global capacity and hard power, and as soft power, the U.S. still does better than China, he said, citing a survey by British research firm Portland that puts America in the top five and China in 27th place. Asia's larger role on the global stage in recent years, thanks partly to the rapid economic growth of countries like China and India, has led some geopolitical analysts to argue that the region will take on the leading role now held by the West. Indian-American analyst Parag Khanna predicted the, quote, Asianization of the world in his book, The Future is Asian. Knight does not entirely disagree with this view, I wrote already 10 years ago in my book, The Future of Power, that one of the great power shifts of the 21st century is the shift of the economic center of the globe from Europe to Asia, or from the western to the eastern hemisphere, he said. However, Nye went on, that does not mean Asia can or will create a united front to take on the West. When you talk about Asia, you're talking about many countries. You're talking about China, Japan, India, and so forth. And the ability of the U.S. to organize itself politically and militarily cannot be compared to that of an entire heterogeneous region, he said. The dividing line is not between Asia and the West, if you talk about values. The dividing line is between authoritarians and democracies, Nye argued, citing Japan and India as examples of the latter. If you ask, will there be an authoritarian alliance in Asia led by China? I think not because Japan and India don't want to succumb either to Chinese values or to Chinese determination and the balance of power. And if the Japanese and Americans stay together in their security alliance, China can't dictate to Japan. Well, Nye did his best to take a, a firm swat at Dr. Prague Khanna, who, by the way, wrote the book just a few years ago called Technocracy in America, where he proposed that America be converted to a direct technocracy. I don't think the book sold a whole lot of copies in America. But right after this article appeared on Joseph Nye, Parag Khanna himself got back into the argument and says, no, Dr. Nye, you're wrong. So then he proceeded to give Joseph Nye a firm slap in the face. And so the spat goes on. You see little things like this periodically and among the global elite. It all seems to be just for show no substance whatsoever, but it makes people think that they're divided and that there is no consensus. In fact, you'd be led to think perhaps that there's real philosophical division here, but in fact, there's not. The next article is one that you can only shake your head over. Trilateral Commission member Eric Schmidt is now leading the AI Ethics Board. He's chairman of that board. Well, I wrote in this article, the Pentagon is leading the way to create ethics standards for the use of artificial intelligence in warfare, as well as in civilian government. And who is chairman of the Defense Innovation Board? Why, it's Trilateral Commission member and ex-CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt. 
Schmidt, who ran Google under the credo, do no evil, and then proceeded to use AI to dominate the Internet, censorship, political candidates, etc., is now the dominant force on the panel that is creating the ethical standards for the use of artificial intelligence in government and warfare. And by the way, it's not just Eric Schmidt. Also sitting on the board is Walter Isaacson, former president of the Aspen Institute and a former member, a prominent member, by the way, of the Trilateral Commission as well. So again, Trilateral Commission policy seems to win the day, but it does seem awfully ironic that the master of AI that is used to manipulate and socially engineer society is given the helm of the organization that's actually creating the AI standards and ethical standards for the government. I don't think their motto is do no evil, and it will be interesting to see what they finally propose. But here's a case of the fox guarding the hen house again. A personal story that was posted on Technocracy News and Trends, written by a gentleman by the name of Bruce Kane, is titled Coronavirus Gives Boost to New Era of No Choice, No Voice. And this is not about where the coronavirus came from, whether it was intentional or not intentional. Makes no difference. As Big Pharma scrambles for vaccines against this virus, you can see the push coming for mandated vaccines everywhere on this planet. It's inevitable that this push will come. I wrote at the top of this article, big tech companies censor any voice that does not support their technocrat agenda, in particular, anti-5G, anti-vaccine, or anti-global warming will get you kicked off their respective platforms or simply shadow banned. That is, you'll get banned, but you'll never know it. This has nothing to do with science and everything to do with strong-arming. Here's one citizen's personal journey and thoughts about no choice, no voice. My wife worked at Henry Ford Hospital for 43 years and just retired on 7-2-2019. About eight years ago, the CSRs, nurses, etc., were given the choice to either get the seasonal flu vaccine or wear a mask. Most opted to wear a mask as they did not want the vaccination. Then about five years ago, the HFH, like most hospitals nationwide, made an ultimatum. Either get the vaccine or lose your job. She had no choice and had to take the vaccine for the remaining three years. Today in many states and cities, boilerplate legislation is being adopted that force vaccinations on populations while taking away religious exemptions. As I have testified back in July 2019, I mentioned that the number of childhood vaccines was doubled around 1990. Since then, the race of childhood autism has risen exponentially, and I have also been dumbstruck that this was not considered a national health emergency when I first understood the correlation, 1989. I'm even more dumbstruck that the issue is still being ignored and suppressed in 2020, 21 years later. I also mentioned that there could be other vectors, contributing factors, including GMO foods that increases in EMF radiation with the growth in cell phone use. 5G implementation is far worse than 1G through 4G, both in terms of densification, that is antennas will be placed every two to 10 homes, and frequencies. Some of the 5G frequencies will interfere with cellular function. 
it is becoming pretty clear that the Hunan coronavirus is an engineered bioweapon that was either purposely or accidentally released. Hunan also implemented 5G around October 2019 and also forced a vaccine on the population around the same time. I've been reluctant to offer my opinion on the coronavirus as there is so much questionable information circulating. But there is scientific evidence that some of these 5G frequencies do interfere with cellular metabolism and do compromise our ability to fight off infections. There are also scientific studies that have shown that various frequencies can activate the Epstein-Barr virus from 1977. The more frequencies we're exposed to, the more likely other dormant viruses, including those in vaccines, will be activated with the rollout of 5G. Science is rarely settled, and much has been learned about vaccines in the past 20 years. It is also becoming clear that vaccines have caused harm to our younger generations that have received twice as many vaccines as they did growing up. Even more concerning are the new generations of vaccines, that is RNA and DNA-based, that are capable of altering our very genome. If that does not concern you, you need to do some research. Man was never intended to alter the tree of life, and we certainly haven't the wisdom to understand the ramifications of changing our very DNA through this new class of vaccines. The movie Vaxxed 2 is coming out, and it is worth a viewing. The first movie, Vaxxed, was heavily censored, but is one small example of how free speech is being suppressed in the United States and around the world. We're moving into a strange new age of no choice, no voice. Our representatives, the media, our government no longer has open discussions with the citizens they are supposed to represent. So here we are in 2020. Our freedom of speech is being stripped away. Our right to choose is being stripped away. Our right to own a gun is being stripped away. More generally, our Bill of Rights is being ripped to shreds. This sends alarm bells off in my head because from my study of human history, whenever human rights are being diminished, totalitarian measures and programs lie right around the next corner. Think Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao. Think about the hundreds of millions that have been slaughtered throughout the last hundred years where freedom is squelched and totalitarianism raised its ugly head. I'm just suggesting to everyone, whether you have a seat in government or are just a hard-working citizen, that we have to start fighting back against these things, especially in the age of no choice, no voice. Our nemesis, composed of the UN, global corporations, co-opted governments, etc., is certainly very powerful. But even they are no match for a united popular resistance by the people of planet Earth. It has to start with each of us standing up and doing something. The hourglass is quickly emptying. There's not a whole lot of time left to rise up. And he says in conclusion, all of us is all we need. Now, I will give some assent to this article as a view of one person. There are a couple of things that I would point out, though, that I might disagree with. On one hand, we as citizens do need each other. This is our country after all. And if you live in a local area like a city, it's your city. You're there with all the other people and you need them as much as they need you. And you should be part of the body politic to direct how that area, that locality would progress. But the answer to the problems we're facing today is not populism. This has been suggested directly by many people recently. Populism is the answer to globalization. And I have to say very pointedly, no, it's not. 
We see what's happening in Europe, for instance, when populism is rising up. We've seen it in Italy. We've seen it in Great Britain, especially with Brexit, only to see them turn around to adopt technocracy as a way to run the operation after they take over. It's called techno-populism. Techno-populism is simply nothing more than just another way to implement technocracy. That is globalization, not the removal of it. So creating a populist movement to fight back against these issues can be a good thing on one hand, but it's not the answer on the other. The answer is, in our case, the Constitution of the United States. This document is the watershed to the rule of law in America. Yes, we need standards. Yes, we need checks and balances. Yes, we need the rule of law. That is where law is applied equally across all sectors of society, regardless of their standing. This is the structure that made America great in the first place. As this structure is stripped away, no amount of populism is going to make society right again. It's going to require a return to the compact of the U.S. Constitution, which literally gives us everything we need to have a country that will ensure domestic tranquility, that will ensure the protection of the rights of the people, that will ensure that the people are not invaded from foreign entities that want to come in and conquer our country. This is not rocket science, but so many people today hate the Constitution. This is where the battle must really begin, re-elevating the Constitution as the great document that it really is. And if it were truly elevated to its proper place in our society again, society would begin to turn around, start thinking straight again. Justice would be dispensed according to the way justice ought to be dispensed, fairly, equally, across all sectors. But today it's a free-for-all. Some people call it democracy. Well, you know democracy is basically two wolves and a lamb having a discussion on what to have for lunch. This is not the way to run a country. Whatever position of majority you might have today might be flip-flopped entirely tomorrow. And again, this is no way to run a country. What America needs is a return to the Constitution of the United States and returning sanity to the public debate. I'm Patrick Wood for Technocracy News and Trends. We'll see you next week. Thank you.